and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. Today, we're speaking with James Harris, manager of the Securities Trust of Scotland. James is the senior fund manager responsible for Troy's global income strategy and has managed global equity portfolio since 2002. He's manager of the Trojan Global Income Fund and was awarded management of the Securities Trust of Scotland in November 2020. James was previously a fund manager at Newton Investment Management, where he established and managed the Newton Global Income Fund. Under James' management, the the fund grew to around £4.5 billion in assets under management and was first in its sector over 10 years. So firstly, James, a very warm welcome to you and thank you for spending some of your time with us. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed. So Securities Trust of Scotland, if we could um, start at the very beginning, what are the sort of um, objectives and an investment style of the trust? So we at Troy, we try to invest uh, on a very long term basis uh, with portfolios that are fo- focused on high quality businesses uh, and which have very low turnover to allow those very high quality businesses to compound. We're highly selective about the sorts of businesses in which we invest and therefore exclude quite large parts of the index uh, that elicit both capital intensity and cyclicality. Now, in the Securities Trust of Scotland, we're trying to provide both income and capital growth for our investors. Uh, We observe, obviously, that that many people, particularly who have uh, irreplaceable capital, if you like, and that are requiring of income, are often those who've retired. And to have an even-handedness of income and capital is the very ancient and obvious investment point that if you can fund a proportion or all of your day-to-day spending from income, then you don't have to tap into capital when markets are rather more troubled, shall we say. So our whole premise is to try and produce excellent risk-adjusted returns, better than average returns, but with below average volatility and to be seen as the conservative managed quality-focused investment trust in the industry. So with that in mind, how does the sector allocation of the trust look at the moment? So as I mentioned, uh, we tend to uh, avoid those with high degrees of of capital intensity, i.e. need a lot of money to manage their business, uh, and that have a high degree of cyclicality, i.e. that are dependent upon the uh, health or otherwise of the broader economy for for their fortunes. And that includes businesses that that are dependent upon the underlying price of commodities, or, or generally we want businesses that are highly predictable and that we can say something sensible about what they'll look like in five, seven, 10 years. And if you can find businesses, you have a high degree of certainty will be bigger, better businesses, and that will sustainably grow free cash flow and in turn their income on a five, seven, 10 year view, well, then you're going to do pretty well. Uh, So we find that those uh, businesses tend to be um, focused in sectors like consumer staples, uh, in healthcare, uh, in technology, Uh, some very idiosyncratic positions in financials. But we do exclude large swathes of the market, which we find to essentially have low returns on capital employed and poor free cash flow growth uh, um, uh, metrics. So to give us a a flavour, James, could you talk us through one or maybe two of the uh, holdings which appear in your top 10? Yeah, certainly. So um, as I sense, we have an emphasis on... on, on, um, consumer staples, on healthcare, uh, and so on. And, and therefore, a couple of the ideas that we might talk about would be something like um, um, Reket Binkiza, which we added to about 18 months ago. 
and I recommend Kiza is probably a business that's familiar to many people. It, it effectively makes two things, things that clean your house and things that make you feel better. And therefore, it was, it turned out, we did, didn't obviously forecast the global pandemic. It was brilliantly positioned for the global pandemic because the demand for those sorts of things uh, clearly took off quite substantially. Now, when we bought it 18 months ago, that wasn't the case. It was under a bit of a cloud. There were concerns relating to management having done a deal to buy a, a infant formula business, which was felt to maybe take up too much of their time and overstretch the balance sheet. There were concerns that they'd underinvested in the business and therefore the margins in that business might be unsustainable. They had some problems in the US. They had some problems in Korea. But ultimately, we felt this to be a really attractive franchise, which had excellent um, market-dominating brands, which were able to then have pricing power and a long longevity of growth, both in free cash flow and income. And we were able to buy it on about a 45 to 5% free cash flow yield, funding a close to 3% dividend yield. Uh, and it's done re reasonably well as a result of the pandemic, apart from other things, and also because the concerns relating to those areas are somewhat dissipated. So that would be a good example of the sort of business in which we're invested. Um, a second one would be a more recent business, uh, ADP. ADP is an uh, outsourced HR business. It's effectively a well-invested technology stack, which allows businesses, particularly in the States, to um, run their human resources uh, departments more effectively. The incentive to outsource HR becomes ever greater because human resources needs become more complex. And if you do it well, it, it's a way of attracting talent. And of course, uh, if you do it poorly, then it can become a liability. Now, quite reasonably, in, in March and April, when people had legitimate concerns relating to the employment outlook of the US, this business traded down to a very attractive valuation. We're able to buy what ultimately we think is a long-term compounding, unlevered, high return on capital uh, um, uh, software business at about a 5% free cash flow yield, funding at close to 3% dividend yield. And they, those two represent really good examples of the sorts of businesses we like. You can say something sensible about what they're going to look like on a five, seven, ten-year view that we don't think are subject to big technological disruption as a result of the fact that they have strong market positioning, strong brands, and so on, and that are able to run their businesses without huge incremental requirements for capital, which ultimately means that they generate lots of free cash flow and therefore income. Understood. Uh, and you mentioned the states in passing there, and obviously even with in terms of the FTSE 100, we know that a lot of earnings come from overseas. Um, how does that reflect itself in terms of your sort of geographical uh, allocation of the trust? I think you've got a, a fair old um, exposure to the States, for example. We do. Well, the way we think about it, um, of course, we're a business, you alluded to the fact that a lot of businesses in the UK have earnings from overseas, and that's absolutely true. The way we think about it is on an underlying revenue basis. And so if you look at the businesses that we are invested in and then where their earnings ultimately are created. About 46% of the portfolio is in the US, about 9% in the UK, uh, about 17% um, in Europe, and then the balance in Asia and, and the rest of the world. So it's a truly global portfolio. Um, and you know, we find at Troy that a lot of the best businesses and the most attractive economy happen to reside in the United States. Uh, and therefore, we're, we're often or, or, or very likely to have a material allocation of capital to that country uh, for that reason. And of course, you know, I would say this, wouldn't I? But we have a global brief in the Securities Trust of Scotland. We're able to go anywhere to invest. And it strikes us that having such a wider mandate is very attractive. And I think, you know, um, the UK market has been somewhat challenging 
recently. Um, doesn't mean it's not attractively valued today. I think it probably is, actually. Uh, but it does highlight, we think, that there is a broader spread of high-quality businesses globally, and that therefore it's it's helpful to be able to go, to go across the globe. And we think, therefore, a global income strategy is very complementary to a UK income strategy. Uh, and those who have irreplaceable capital and requiring of income should probably invest in both. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the FTSE 100 had a tough 2020, down about 14% over the year, whereas the various main US indices, of course, were were all uh, strongly ahead during the year, um, particularly the NASDAQ. Um, so two very different pictures emerging there. Presumably, you've been able, with that American exposure, to, to ride some of the wave of the strength of the US markets in 2020. You know, we've been doing this for over 25 years now, and I'm not sure I can remember a year quite like yeah. it. Yeah. Not just because of the unbelievable rarity of a global pandemic and the sharpness of the drawdown in March, but of course also the remarkable recovery we've seen in markets since then, leading ultimately to a really pretty good return for 2020 as a whole. Um, and there are a number of observations we can make about that. First of all, in terms of performance, our performance was somewhat behind the broader index, uh, but more or less in line with our, our, our global income peers. And there are a couple of attributes to that, clearly, and it's often very much the case in markets that are in an extended bull market, and I would argue we probably are today, so 10, 12 years after the, low, the, last, the, the last major low, um, you often get some very large businesses leading the charge, so to speak. And we've seen this in, in, in a very uh, noticeable way this year. So a very small number of very large technology companies that tend not to pay any income did extremely well. And the rest of the global index was actually quite quite pedestrian. Now, as a global income investor, we're never going to be on the vanguard. We're never going to be in businesses that are on the cutting edge or unlikely to be. Uh, we're rather more slow and steady in trying to be in businesses, as I said, that could be rather more predictable. But neither are we in those businesses we think are subject to significant technological disruption. So we're not at the cutting edge, but also not in the sorts of businesses that have been really challenged by what's going on in the economy. So, so retail will be a very good example of that. So there's been a, a concentration of very large technology companies. There's also been a bifurcation between quality income and might, you might say uh, uh, other income-bearing assets, which are probably rather more structurally challenged. We suffer from the former. We didn't have exposure to the latter, and therefore our, our, our return was, was sort of reasonable. Um, but it is interesting that we were able to find a number of business in the States. We, we do find it to be a highly attractive economy. Uh, and we do think the merits of being able to invest globally um, stack up. Presumably, the, the, with the income requirement in mind, your, your view hasn't changed. Obviously, uh, the UK, for example, traditionally pays a rather higher uh, dividend yield uh, than its US peers, notwithstanding the amount of dividend cuts we had in the UK last year. But now, now we're into this kind of lockdown mark three. Um, are there potentially uh, some other stocks which might have to, to trim their dividend again, or are the kind of stocks that you're invested in uh, fairly defensive in, the, in their quality? Well, we grew our, our yield this year on last year, and we expect to be able to continue to grow it into the future. So the yield on the fund is about 3.1% today. And we, be, we went through the fund line by line, company by company, balance sheet by balance sheet in March and April. And we then were fairly sure and fairly convinced that we were going to continue to be able to pay and grow our dividend. Again, if you look for businesses that are relatively resilient, 
that are not subject to technological disruption and by and large aren't over-distributing, i.e. don't have too much, aren't paying out too much of their income in the form of a dividend, as turned out to be the case more broadly in the UK market as a whole. Then you could say that with some confidence. Furthermore, if you were invested in businesses that weren't subject to government support, where, of course, there were big political question marks as to whether it was uh, ethical to continue to pay dividends to shareholders when in receipt of government support, we weren't in those businesses. We were in businesses that were essentially self-financing, uh, that were providing goods and services which investors required uh, and, 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 and didn't need government support. And therefore, their management teams quite reasonably felt that it was completely uh, um, um, okay to continue to pay dividends to shareholders uh, in the same way that um, to, have a, to have a view to stakeholders more broadly. So we only had two dividend, one dividend cut or one dividend suspension and one, one dividend cancellation, one dividend suspension. Um, uh, and uh, Intercontinental Hotels Group is the only business that actually suspended its dividend in the portfolio. We think that's quite a sensible thing to do to conserve cash, given they're in the teeth of the store. It's a wonderful business. doesn't own the underlying businesses. It's really a software and branding business. Rather remarkably, even in the depths of March, uh, it was cash flow positive, showing what a good quality business it is. Um, so we're very happy with that as a long-term holding, but we do think it's sensible for them to have cut their dividends. But having done the analysis... Not only were we confident that we could continue to grow income this year, we think into the future, next year and into the future. And I think the juxtaposition of that against the UK market, which I think it you know, became apparent had been over-distributing, had effectively been rewarding or bribing shareholders with dividends in a manner which they couldn't really afford, and that all became apparent in, 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 um, in March. That isn't the case globally. Um, we can find lots of assets which are generating sufficient free cash flow yield to fund their dividend and reinvest in their businesses to entrench their competitive positions um, uh, and operate their businesses successfully. And finally, James, obviously we're in a, a slightly different situation now over the last month or so with the, the variants um, of, of COVID-19 uh, rearing their ugly head. That being said, there's a lot of anticipation uh, of economic uh, recovery later in the year, depending, of course, on the success of the rollout of the vaccine. But generally speaking, I, I realise it's an impossible question, but what's your sort of outlook from here going through the rest of 2021? Well, it's intriguing. And I guess 2020 reminds one that making forecasts is... Uh... <laughs> is a highly difficult and, uh, and should probably thing to do and should probably be avoided. We, we can make some observations, though, uh, in the sense that equity markets, if you look at very long-term measures of equity markets, so if you compare the uh, market capitalization of the US market relative to GDP, or if you look at the so-called Schiller PE, which is a 10-year um, 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 real adjusted PE, if you look at these sorts of very long-term measures, they tend to suggest that markets are very fully valued at the moment. At the same time, if you look at the fixed income market, if you look at the bond market, then uh, equities don't look particularly expensive. So on a relative basis, they look okay. And uh, on an absolute basis, they look pretty rich. So what we take from that is our expectation, I, I mean, yes, the first point to make is that just comparing one expensive asset with another expensive asset doesn't make either of them particularly fantastic, just means both are quite fully valued. But the second is that our expectation, I think, is that interest rates are likely to stay very low. Um, either they will stay very low because the structural forces that have led to a low inflation backdrop, such as declining demographics, elevated levels of debt, which of course are only getting worse, um, technological disruption, which undermines pricing power in the economy, as we discussed earlier, and so on, 
and likely to persist and probably likely to have got somewhat worse. Uh, in that environment, I think a, 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 a portfolio such as this generating a sustainable 3% in growing dividend yield could do pretty well. So I think the, the fact that uh, valuations on an aggregate basis are pretty fully valued means that expected returns in the market as a whole are probably quite low from here uh, in all asset classes. But we are at the portfolio level generating about a 6% free cash flow yield uh, that's funding about a 3.1% dividend yield, which we expect to grow. And so we have... I know I would say this, wouldn't I? But we have far more confidence that our portfolio is likely to generate a decent return from today than I do uh, the broader market, um, given where it's given where it's currently valued. And indeed, you know that 3.1% dividend yield to investors who are acquiring of income relative to fixed income looks very attractive. And it may be that it's not around for much longer because the assets that we hold are seen to be very attractive and begin to be bid up. So we don't know. We're not going to forecast which way the market goes, but we think either way, this idea of having a decent quality and reasonably, you know, we find lots of good quality businesses trading at decent valuations, allowing us to pay a sustainable dividend yield. We just think that's an attractive asset and that will do relatively well um, uh, uh, if the market were to continue to move up or indeed if it was to be more challenged next year. And good to finish on a very upbeat note as ever. So many thanks again for your time, James, and for those uh, valuable insights. Um, And thank you for listening. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now. Bye for now.